0: So today, we're uh, in the second part of a little series. Uh, This is a mini-series, I guess you might call it, uh, called Say What? And uh, you you get the premise of say what. Say what is another way of saying uh, when somebody asks you something or comments to you about something and and you can't believe it, you might say, you got to be kidding me. Say what is another way of saying that. And this series is an opportunity for us to think about Sometimes things that Christians say, that people who are not Christians, who aren't in the church, that they hear those things and they go, say what? They don't get it. They don't understand what it means. And so last week we talked about uh, how uh, one of the sayings is that everything happens for a reason and how to an unchurched person that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, next week we're going to be talking about the phrase, come to church with me. And we're going to explore what that means and how that impacts an unchurched person, a non-Christian person. And today, we're going to be talking about another phrase that's often used by Christians, and that is that God won't give you more than you can handle. Say what is right. God won't give you more than you can handle. You hear it again and again and again coming out of the mouths of Christians. And one of the things that that is important to us For us to think about as we consider this phrase is that there are are oftentimes that we have really, really big hardships in our lives that when we hear God won't give you more than you can handle, we wonder, what does that mean for me? How do I understand what that is trying to convey to me? Think about when you lose a loved one and someone says God won't give you more than you can handle. Well, it alludes to the idea that, that the person that died, that God made them die at that time, no matter what they died from. It raises all kinds of questions for those individuals. Think about a homeless person who, by definition, doesn't have a home. And oh, by the way, if they're homeless, they, they struggle with hunger every single day. And think about a Christian going up to somebody like that and saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. How does that impact that person? Does that draw them closer to God? Does that want them to be in relationship with God, a statement like that based on their situation and circumstances? What about somebody who's abused, maybe sexually abused, or maybe uh, the victim of racism, And, and we have the audacity to say God won't give you more than you can handle? How is someone supposed to interpret that to make sense? What about the people, the family members of those who lost loved ones, in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. Over 300 people lost their lives, most of them in places of worship, some of them in other ancillary places where there were lots of people gathered. Think about going to one of those friends of someone who died and saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. How does that strike them? Or what about the families of the over 1,000 people now who have died from Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the last six months, over a thousand people have died. Think about going to one of those family members and saying, "God won't give you more than you can handle." How does that impact them? What kind of light does this put on God? You're undergoing chemotherapy and radiation, whatever it might be, and it's especially hard on you. And, and someone says, God won't give you more than you can handle. And is it a way that the devil begins to tempt us to think about, well, did I do something wrong? Is God punishing me for what has gone on in my life that I had to endure this? The passage that's most often associated with this idea of God won't give you more than you can handle is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let me read it to you. It says, No temptation has seized you that isn't common for people. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your abilities. Instead, with the temptation, God will also supply a way out so that you will be able to endure it. Now, the first thing we would observe from this passage is that Paul references this word temptation. And it can be, when you look at it in the original language, it can be interpreted to mean temptation or it can be interpreted to mean trial. It can be interpreted to mean sin. You look at passages in Scripture and this same word is used in different contexts, in different ways. And and this is why it's so important for us as we read the Bible to look at the context, the wider uh, context of what the what the verses are trying to say because most of you would understand that you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you just go in and pull passages out, lift them out, and use them out of context. And so it's important for us to understand that when Paul is talking about temptation that we understand the context because is Paul really asking about temptation or what? Another way to think about it, if I were to use the phrase beat it, uh, you wouldn't know if I was asking you to leave. Or you wouldn't know if I was trying to tell the cat that was in my front yard to get out of my front yard. Or you don't know whether or not I was trying to give instructions about how to properly scramble eggs. Or maybe you might wonder if I was making a reference to a famous Michael Jackson song. But the context in which I would use that phrase, beat it, would determine how I was using that, those couple of words. And that's what Paul is doing here with this word temptation. When you look at it, when you study it, when you dig a little bit deeper, it's referring to temptation. To do things that we know we shouldn't do, but we are tempted to do them anyway. And this has to do with the differences between a trial and a temptation. So when Paul uses this word temptation, we must understand that it's consistent with the context in which he uses it. It's consistent with what Paul says in other places. It's also consistent with what James says when he talks about the differences between a trial and a temptation. And even though I've talked about it on several occasions in the recent past, it's worth a refresher to remember that a a trial is simply something that God puts in our path in order to strengthen us. It's a hardship of some kind that God places there so that we might wrestle through it in order to make us stronger. Think about it this way. If you broke your arm, you'd go to the doctor, they'd put a cast on it. You'd probably put your arm in a sling, perhaps. Uh, But they would tell you uh, over time that when that cast comes off, don't expect that arm to be as strong as it was before because there's a lot of atrophy that goes on because the muscles aren't being used Uh, You have to build that arm strength back up. And that's the idea that that is behind this word trial, this perception of trial. What a trial is, is, is it's God doing something in us to help us stronger for what is ahead. A temptation is different though. A temptation is something that we are tempted to do and sometimes give into that we know is destructive for our lives. It could be something as simple as spending more time on a video game, playing a video game, than we know we should be spending on the video game. It's why pornography is so rampant in our society today, is a place of temptation, and it's easily accessible, and therefore becomes a great temptation for some. Some of you were tempted not to come here this morning. And I'm not going to ask you to admit who you were. Some of you might get the whole place going, yeah, that was me, right? (laughs) But you understand you had to overcome. You had to make a conscious decision, even though it would have been nice to sleep in, even though it would have been nice to have a cup of coffee while you caught up on the news of the day. You came anyway. You were tempted to do otherwise. Temptation is something we all understand. Uh, not too long ago, I had a meeting in Fort Worth, and it was late in the day. I was coming home, and I called Chrissy to see if there was anything I could pick up on the way home. So I stopped at Albertson's down there in Lake Worth. She said, uh, all, we, all we really needed is some bread. So I went in to get some bread, and I came out with some bread and some Oreos. <laughs> and you would understand that some of you might say, well, you gave in to temptation, Frank. Well, I'd say, no, that was just a good decision on my part. So Paul writes to the church at Corinth about two decades after Jesus' death and, oh, by the way, resurrection. Let the church say amen. Amen. About two decades afterwards, the church in Corinth had been established. And if you're a student of the Bible some, you know that Corinth was a very cosmopolitan city. It was the place in that part of the world where, where if you were anybody, you had to go to Corinth and spend some time because anybody who was anybody had to go to Corinth because that was where everything was happening. And when I say everything was happening, you can understand that there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of challenges there about this idea of temptation uh, because because Corinth was at the crossroads between east and west. If you were going to get goods and services from the east, meaning the Middle East or even the Far East, you had to go through Corinth because that's where the travel routes took you in order to get up to Rome and that part rest of the world. And so because of it, there were a lot of sailors there. There were a lot of uh, people from all different cultures, backgrounds that were there. It was a melting pot of people. And along with that melting pot of people came all kinds of what the Bible calls debauchery. And debauchery is simply about giving yourself into the sin that might be tempting for you. We also know that the people that lived in Corinth, that the Christians would call them pagans and a pagan was simply someone who was not a Christian and not a Jew. These pagans were involved in all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of drunkenness, sexual immorality of many kinds, and these are just a few of the many temptations that people were giving themselves over to in Corinth. And these were the same people that Paul went and spoke the good news to, who said they accepted Jesus and they began to form a church. These people coming out of that situation were struggling with their temptation because they knew that by accepting Jesus into their lives, their lives needed to change. They understood that. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. It convicts us that we need to make changes in our lives. But the problem was they still lived in Corinth. And around them, everywhere they would turn, there were all kinds of temptations. They were tempted into acts of self-absorption because of the society in which they lived. And it sounds a little bit to me like living here in Fort Worth, Texas. Because if you want to get into trouble, there's plenty of ways that you can get into trouble in a big metropolitan area. So when you look at the context of what Paul is saying and talking about, you find that he's addressing issues that are a result of temptation, of internal sin, a desire to satisfy the self Even though one knows that it is wrong. In verse 6, Paul mentions in the same chapter prior to verse 13. Verse 6, he mentions those who desire evil. That's a temptation. He talks about idolaters, people that are putting other things above the one God. He talks about sexual immorality. He talks about how we put Christ to the test. And in verse 10, he talks about grumbling. And in verse 12, He encourages us to do what is right. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. In other words, don't get so big on yourself that you think you can resist all this stuff because that's the moment you're going to fall. And all this leads up into verse 13 where he uses this word, Temptation to refer to all those things that he's just mentioned and many other things related to it. He's talking about sin. Way back in the very beginning of the Bible, we have the story about Cain and Abel. And in Genesis 4, verse 7, God warns Cain, He says, Sin is crouching at the door. Get that image in your head for a moment. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you are. Must rule over it. Sin is simply about giving away our desire and utilizing that desire, and and we have this power within us because of Jesus to resist those temptations. And so, one of the clear teachings that Paul gives us is that we are not tempted beyond our ability to stand. Paul says, Even as you are tempted, God will show you a way out, but you've got to be looking for the way out, friends. If you go into a dark cave somewhere, uh, you're probably going to want to follow the light to get out. But you've got to make the choice to follow what is right and good. We know about this idea of temptation and about how God will show us the way out. When I was in college, I was wrestling with my call to ministry And the biggest influencer in my life, my spiritual mentor at that time in my life, he and I were having a lot of conversations because he could see he believed that I had a call in my life and he wanted to walk me through that and process it. And one day we were talking about counseling as a pastor. How does that work? How does that look? Those kinds of things. And it went from a general conversation about that to how do you handle situations uh, when you're counseling someone of the opposite sex? And he told me a story about this very issue, about how God provides for you when it looks like you don't have a way out. He said that there was a woman that he was, uh, had been counseling with a couple of times, and she showed up one day for the, her counseling session, and he says, how's it going? Uh, what's going on? And she said, well, I had a revelation from God. And he's like, wow, how great is that? A revelation from God. And he said, well, tell me about it. She said, well, on the way here, while I was driving here, the Holy Spirit descended on me and told me that you and I are supposed to make love today in your office, right now, right here. And, and he, said, he said, you know, my first reaction was to, to pull a Forrest Gump, right? And run, Forrest, run. Just get out of there, right? But he said, you know, I didn't want to make this an especially awkward situation because it was already awkward and I wanted to be sensitive to her. And he said, the Spirit of God spoke to me in that moment as I'm desperate. God, what do I say to her? And he said with a calm voice, he said, you know, the spirit right before you walked in the door spoke to me and told me that he had told you this in the car, but there was a new message for for you from the spirit of God. And that was we were not to make love today. And they had their counseling session. And then he met with her never again after that. But, but you understand in a little bit of a funny situation how important it is to follow the leadership of God when we get ourselves in challenging positions, because if we're looking for the way out, God will always, always provide a way out when we are tempted. But sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves beat down so badly because of life's situations that we're not sure that we can deal with it. Sometimes life just feels unhandleable. And maybe today, you're someone who is feeling that pressure. Maybe today, you're feeling that something that you're facing is insurmountable. You don't have any idea how in the world you're going to be able to overcome this because it weighs you down so deeply. And when you look at Paul's life, one of the things that you find in studying his life is is that he at least one time in his life, was in the very same position that you are, my friend, if you're feeling like life is insurmountable right now. Listen to what he says in his second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He says, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be unaware of the troubles that we went through in Asia. We were weighed down with a load of suffering that was so far beyond our strength that we were afraid we might not survive. It certainly seemed to us as if we had gotten the death penalty. This was so that we would have confidence in God who raises the dead instead of ourselves. God rescued us from a terrible death, and He will rescue us. We have set our hope on Him that He will rescue us again since you are helping with your prayer for us then many people can thank God on our behalf for the gift that was given to us through the prayers of many people. Paul acknowledges that he had a place in his life where he felt like it was insurmountable, the challenges that he faced. And Paul leads us to a pivotal teaching of part of what Paul's message to us for today is that we must rely on God's strength, not ours. And this is especially true when we think about what we're trying to deal with, which, which is right in front of us. Because one of the things that I know about suffering is that suffering doesn't come on our schedules. Suffering doesn't come when it's convenient for us. It can sometimes come in a flash, sometimes... Suffering comes in the course of time. But suffering never asks for permission, whether or not it's okay for us to suffer at a particular time. It doesn't care about our schedules. And let's be honest and just say there's never a good time for our lives to be wrecked. Never. Is there a good time for that? But the problem with this phrase, God won't give you, more than you can handle. One of the big rubs that I have with this concept is that it it alludes to this idea that I have the ability to overcome and I don't have the ability to overcome. God has the ability to help me overcome if I'll follow God's leadership. It's not of my own strength. It's of God's strength. I bet you if I were to ask you, uh, if we were to have a conversation out in the lobby or down the hallway, if I say, hey, you, you think you're pretty strong? And many of you might say, well, yeah, I'm pretty strong. But let's be honest. Let's recognize that when life gets really hard, we're just like little bitty babies. That we crater to the pressures of what goes on around us. And very often it's because we're trying to depend on our strength and not on God's strength. It's why Paul said in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. These challenges that we face, the suffering that we endure, comes in many forms, many shapes and sizes. We live in a broken world with broken people. And as a result, there are times where it feels like God is giving us more than we can handle. But God will never give us more than He can handle. And we can bank on that. In Psalm 121, David says this, I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The mountains who are so mighty and so magnificent. Does my help come from there? No, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We must trust that in our challenges, the Lord's help will come, but we have to seek God's help in order for that strength to come into our lives. The Bible makes it clear that when we're beat down, when we're struggling, when we're dealing with life in a hard situation, whatever it might be, that our job is not to turn inward, but to turn Godward. Instead of looking in, we need to look up. Listen to another Psalm. This time, Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. It says, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. Can I get an amen? amen? Always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Imagine that vision. Mountains crumbling into the sea and we're panicking because life is exploding right in front of us. It says, We will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. The psalmist reminds us our help comes from the Lord. So I don't know about you, but there's bound to be some in here today or maybe somebody watching at home that feels like the mountains are trembling and crumbling into the sea, that they feel as though they're being swallowed up by the ocean, the foam, the violence that can be the ocean. God is bigger than these mountains, bigger than this sea. God is greater than all of our challenges, bigger than all of the universe. And this big God we love cares about each one of us, each one of you. God cares desperately for because he sent his one and only son to die just for you and me. In Isaiah 40, it says, God gives power to the faint and increases the strength of the weak. The power for us to overcome comes from God. It's his strength that shows us the way. So we must learn that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. Most of you know that I had radiation last fall for uh, hopefully to eradicate, uh, eradicate the uh, prostate cancer that um, I had removed my prostate eight and a half years ago. And I entered radiation because my blood work kept my PSA kept going up and up. So I had radiation. As a result of that, I had some complications. And as a result of those complications, I had had surgery. And it was a horrible, painful experience that I went through, the most horrible, painful experience of my life. And oh, by the way, in the middle of that, Chrissy was having a bunch of tests. And right before I was to have surgery uh, for my complication, we found out that Chrissy had a cancerous tumor on her kidney and... Oh, by the way, when Chrissy had to go see the doctor, the surgeon, to find out about it and to talk about her surgery, I couldn't go because I I was in such pain. And oh, to make life a little bit more miserable on the day that Chrissy had her surgery, I wasn't able to be there for the surgery with her. And I got to say, that may have been the hardest day of my life, to not be with my bride on the day that she was having serious surgery. And I was, man, i got to tell you, in the bed at the house, there was a serious pity party going on because I was wounded and I was hurting. And in that time, in the couple of days after Chrissy had her surgery, I felt the Spirit of God remind me of another passage of Scripture. And it says, My grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is is enough for you Frank because my power is made perfect in your weakness may God be praised and oh by the way uh, let's uh, let me just make you aware this morning that uh, Chrissy had scans on Wednesday of this past week to the start of the follow-up process for her. They're looking for cancer cells. And one of the nurses called on Thursday night and said, hey, your scans came back and there's no cancer that we find in your body. So praise God for that. Amen and amen. Paul says, my grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. When we are weak, then he is strong. Listen to Paul's words In context, in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, he says, I was given a thorn in my body because of the outstanding revelations I've received so that I wouldn't be conceited. Now think about that. Paul says, I got these, I got I got some kind of an issue. I've got some kind of pain in my life, pain in my body, and I believe that God has given it to me so that I wouldn't be conceited. Meaning Being all buffed up like, hey, I got all the answers. Get my pride out of the way. He goes on. It's a messenger from Satan sent to torment me so that I wouldn't be conceited. So so that I wouldn't act like I'm all that. I'm paraphrasing there, please. I pleaded with the Lord three times for it to leave me alone. He said to me, my grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. So I'll gladly spend my time bragging about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. Therefore, I'm all right with weaknesses, insults, disasters, harassments, and stressful situations for the sake of Christ because when I'm weak, then I am strong. And you and I need to be in the business of celebrating our weaknesses because they remind us that Christ is our strength in the midst of the challenges that we face. And too often in the church... We're so busy uh, putting on our masks and pretending that everything is great that we don't give Jesus a chance to shine because we're unwilling to talk about the burdens that we have. I wish, I pray that the holy conversations that are going on in the lobby or in the hallways or in a classroom around here wouldn't be about the superficial things of life, but it would be about the deeper things of life, that we would be real with one another. And that as we go forward as a church, that part of that reality would be that we would share some of those burdens. Man, I'm not having a good day. Well, hey, who hasn't had a not so very good day, right? And and let us be a church where we stop in those moments and say, gosh, I hope it gets better for you. Or instead of saying, I will pray for you, how about saying, let's pray about it right now. Let's pray about the power of God to change our attitudes and our hearts in times like these. Paul says, we will not be tempted beyond that which we can stand because God will always give us a way out. Don't blame your sin. I cannot blame my sin on somebody else. It's my giving in to temptation when that happens. Paul says, but when life gets really tough, God's grace is sufficient in all circumstances. It doesn't matter what your circumstance. God's grace will be sufficient for you. We must rely on God's strength, not ours. May I I invite you today to consider not using the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle, and instead change it to God will give you all the grace you need in every situation you face. God will give you all the grace you need in every situation you face. What an amazing God we have Who would do that for you and for me. To give us the grace sufficient for every need. All glory be to God. Can the church say amen? Amen. Can the church say amen? amen? Let's pray. God, how grateful we are that your love is sufficient for us. Help us, God, to recognize our own frailties and admit those frailties, God, and give ourselves to chasing after you because you are the one whose strength we must rely on. In times when we are burdened to the point where we feel like we cannot take one more step, go one more inch in our lives. God, by the power of your spirit, speak to those this day, in this place or in their homes. Speak life into them. Help them know that you desperately care about what they are dealing with and that you and your strength can be theirs if they would just open their hearts and lives and give their pain to you. God, thank you that you lead us in times like this. May you be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. Amen.